Hey, this is Sandy. And Randy. And we're here on AT Corner. Being an athletic trainer comes with ups and downs, and we're here to showcase them all. Join us as we share our world in sports medicine. Welcome back to another episode of AT Corner. For today's episode, we are talking about some bone-rattling information. Are we? I really, you know what's funny is I really thought, just thought of that right now. We're talking about stress fractures. What about stress fractures? Everything. I know my view of them is they can be very frustrating to work with because they mimic so many different things. Yeah, so many. So I feel pretty confident that I've gotten pretty good at identifying stress fractures. Of course, there's the ones that are still like, oh, that was a tough one. But anywho... Hopefully after today's episode, you guys can get on Randy's level. Is that what you're I, saying? I'm sure hoping we can get above my level, preferably. <laughs> Anywho, the objectives for this episode will review anatomy and physiology of the bone. Because, I mean, if we're talking about bones, might as well know how they work. That's a nod of agreement. Love it. Then we'll also discuss the different stress fracture sites in the lower extremity and their implications for healing. Which, by the way, if we didn't mention that, this episode is going to be stress fractures in the lower extremity. So all the upper extremity stress fractures we won't be talking about. I don't think I've ever seen an upper extremity stress fracture. They are fairly rare, but it does happen. Crazy. Like, I believe a lot of rowers get a lot of rib stress fractures. Ah, that makes sense. Then we'll also discuss risk factors. We'll discuss the evaluation and interventions for stress fractures, and then we'll talk a little, talk a little bit about return to play. So what you're saying is we've got a big episode. We have a big episode. As I was typing this up, I was like, ooh, this is going to be a big episode. All right, let's jump in. I know anatomy and physiology can be a little bit boring to listen to, but hang on with us. Yeah, so, I mean, it's really basic. I mean, I'm pretty sure we all remember this from our anatomy courses. I've taken way too much anatomy uh osteoclast right they reabsorb bone osteoblast deposit bone so blast build yep exactly i was gonna say we got to bring it back to the old <laughs> the old little uh analogies there and then your osteocytes so the interesting thing with osteocytes right we always talk about oh it's a osteoblast that's now trapped within the bone can't do anything so now it's an osteocyte. Well, the osteocytes actually have a pretty big job, and they communicate with the osteoblast outside of the osteon. So as your bones like do things and like get loaded through exercise, that mechanical load is detected by the osteocytes. So the mechanical load is actually bending in the bone and forces going through the bone. Not a lot of people know that, but like when you run, and so- your bones do bend a little bit. They're not just solid surfaces, or they just break all the time. So... The osteocytes then signal to the osteoblast like, hey, we need to build bone. And then amongst the signaling, osteoclasts are also signaled from the surrounding cells and bloodborne agents like your hormones and stuff like that to take out the damaged bone to make way for the osteoblast to build new bone. Essentially, when this is in harmony, when the osteoblast and osteoclasts are working together, you get newly formed bone. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. So that's it for the anatomy, right? That is it. Yes. We we kept it really basic. All right. Let's start talking about stress fractures. So as I just mentioned, when it's in perfect harmony, you get new bone formation. But when the remodeling process is not in harmony, that's when we have a problem. Essentially, 
in stress fractures, you're, they're judged on a continuum, right? You can have a stress reaction, which is basically swelling and edema in the bone or in the like under the periosteum or in the periosteum, all the way to a complete fracture, stress fracture, where you can actually see it on an x-ray. There's actually a disruption in the bone. And what ha- what's happening with that is essentially the osteoblasts can't keep up. The osteoblasts don't have a chance to like, oh, I'm laying down my new bone because they just keep getting stressed and the osteoclasts are working to get rid of damaged bone and no new bones kept being able to keep up. So now you have a, a gap in that healing process. That's a really good explanation, actually. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing as when you think about tendinopathy, right? Your body's not being allowed to catch up to the recovery process. And that's essentially what's happening in the bone. And the problem with bones is they have a set time schedule on when they heal. They are not fast healers. It's a it's a slow moving process. So if you're not giving your chance for your body to catch up, problems are going to happen. So speaking of the long time frame of bones, when you get someone with a stress fracture, the prognosis of depending on what stress fracture is is dependent on the site of where it's at and the actual damage that's being seen. And a lot of times the best way to view this damage is via MRI. X-rays are a valuable tool, and anytime you go to a doctor for an orthopedic problem, they're probably going to order X-rays because it's quick and you get get a lot of information. And you may see some stuff, but you're really not seeing a lot on X-rays until it's like really bad. Until like, it's a problem. Like if you see it on an X-ray, you know it's bad. And the cool thing is with the MRI is they've actually found a relationship based on the grade of damage on an MRI and how long the return to play would be. So they usually grade it on a four-grade scale. A grade four on an MRI would be like a complete disruption, so basically an actual stress fracture. And the higher the grades, obviously the more damage, which was related to a longer recovery time. I think the study that I read actually equated that one unit increase in MRI grade was equal to 48 days added to the recovery process. That's a long time. That's That's a long time. That's almost two months. Yes. And it's when you think about it, it seems like a long time, but that's usually how stress fractures run. They they take a while. And I know for, again, most of my backgrounds with running athletes and the repetitive new, stress. Yes. The news of a stress fracture, I almost equate it to an ACL tear to them because cross country season is not a long season. So if someone gets a stress fracture, their season's pretty much done. Luckily, tracks a little bit longer for distance kids, but it's still a long recovery, and then you got to get back into training. So, having a dealing with a stress fracture can be very detrimental to some of these endurance athletes, these running athletes. Yeah, can you say lingering? <laughs> lingering. Thanks. You're welcome. I mean, you did. I mean, that's what I'm here for. I'm I'm here for the people. All right, let's talk about low risk versus moderate risk versus high risk. So when we talk about these different type of risk categories of stress fractures, this goes back to the site of the stress fracture. So not all stress fractures are going to be the same. So just this isn't the full list. We just kind of hit some big ones. Um, there's a lot of good literature out there about giving good information about high risks and low risk fractures that we will have in our references. So I encourage you if you want to know more about these or know more about the different types of high risk stress fractures, please take a look at that stuff. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the episode where you can find that stuff. Yes. 
So one of the classic high-risk stress fractures is a femoral neck stress fracture, in particular if it's on the tension side of the bone. So as we mentioned, bones bend when they're going through exercise, which means if they're bending, there's one side that's getting compressed and there's one side getting tension. So on the tension side, you can think about it, the bone, essentially, the layers of the bone are getting pulled apart. Well, that's kind of the idea of a fracture, right? Ends are being split. You can expect, I mean, remember, each patient's going to be different in how they respond, but, you know, a lot of times you get asked by the athlete, oh, well, how long is this going to take? A good baseline, you can expect four to six weeks of non-weight bearing. That's a long time. And so difficult for a runner, especially. Oh, big. You just tell them to take a day off. They have a problem. Yeah. Let alone telling them, hey, you can't weight bear for four to six weeks. Ooh. And then the total healing time, you're looking at about two to three months to heal. So you're still really not even doing much within that time frame. So probably around two to three months is when you're beginning your return to run. The next high-risk area, and this is another classic one that everyone thinks about, is the anterior tibia because, again, that's the tension side of the tibia when you're running. That's where a lot of tension's being forced on the tibia compared to other areas. And then you can expect about six to eight weeks of non-weight bearing for this injury as well. Now, the sesamoids, which is interesting, not a lot of people, and I kind of forgot about this, not a lot of people would think about it as, oh, that's a high-risk area. We get this a lot in dance. Yeah, and a lot of times you think of, oh, uh, sesamoiditis will treat it. It's not a bad idea to get a sesamoid stress fracture ruled out right away because, and as I was reading, I had to think about it. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. The sesamoids don't have very good blood flow, which means they don't heal very well. So if they're constantly stressed and constantly damaged, the bone can actually die. And next thing you know, you got a chunk of dead bone in your in your great toe or just... Uh, proximal to your great toe and that's not good no i I wouldn't say so (laughs) so always keep that in mind if you're having someone with sesamoid pain it may not be a bad idea depending on how long it's been going on what their pain level's at to get stress fracture ruled out and similar to the other high-risk stress fractures you're looking at about four to six weeks non-weight bearing other high-risk stress fractures to think about are your navicular stress fracture base of the second metatarsal which is interesting is if the stress fracture goes into the cuneiforms it's even more of a high risk situation that sounded cool to say high risk situation and then the last one would be the talus or the medium alveolus so if you have athletes with pain in those areas keep that in the back of your mind that We may be dealing with a stress fracture, depending on what your evaluation tells you and what their history is. For the moderate risk stress fractures, it's kind of been, some literature doesn't put a moderate risk. They just split it to high and low. So some of the research that I found that did have moderate risk, I liked that idea as it's kind of a high risk. It's not quite in one category. Yeah, I kind of liked that. So that's why I kept it. Uh, Your moderate risk stress fractures are going to be your... Uh, sacral stress fractures um these ones you can return pretty quickly if it's managed correctly uh you can return to running maybe around 12 weeks and that will depend on the severity and then femoral shaft so we already talked about the femoral neck being high risk the femoral shaft is more of a moderate risk Um, you can expect about 8 to 12 weeks to return to running so these ones are a lot faster than the high risk ones 
And then as we go into your low risks, those are probably the more common ones you would see, like a tibial stress fracture, predominantly on the medial side, um, metatarsal shaft, except for the base of the second metatarsal, that one, that one's not good. And then your calcaneus. Nice. So we were just talking about risk of the injury itself, but what about the risk factors that might cause these? Yes, this has been a very big area to look at. One area that the literature has looked at is obviously training load, because what is this? Overuse injury, right? And basically it goes off the idea of what we talked about, that your bones just are not being allowed to heal properly. So as your athletes start working out, you want to make sure that there's a gradual progression. But when they looked at training load in the literature, it's a little iffy as far as absolute mileage. So we always talked about like, you know, how cross country kids, oh, I run like 50 miles a week or 60 miles. I run a hundred miles a week. And some people are like, well, that's a lot of miles. I don't think that's good. The absolute mileage is not really a risk factor. And I agree with that. There are some kids who can tolerate like a hundred miles a week and they have like no injuries. And then there's kids who get to mile 40 of the week and They've completely fallen apart. The wheels are all over the place. Are you saying that this is highly individualized? Like I am pretty much everything else we talk about on this show. I am saying it is highly individualized. Um, but that's not saying training load is not a factor. One area of training load is how much it increases. Um, it's tough to measure this in the literature just because it's so variable on each person. But I know my clinical experience, I've had kids... They were doing 20 miles a week and then all of a sudden season starts and now they're jumping up to 50. Felt like that was a good idea to do that. And now they're like shins hurt and oh my foot hurts. And I've found a couple stress fractures that way. So keep that in mind when you talk about load is it's sometimes not the absolute load. It's how quickly that load's being applied. If they're doing quick jumps in their training, that's a big red flag that there, you might be dealing with a stress fracture. Well, it's the same thing with acclimatization. I mean, you wouldn't be training at normal weather and then all of a sudden jump into the summer weather or you're not going to be training at low altitude and then all of a sudden do a race in high altitude. Absolutely. And if you do, usually bad things happen. The next area that gets looked at a lot and something that we like to look at is the biomechanics, right? It's something that we can, oh, we can correct biomechanics. Like we could do something about that. And kind of going back to training load is the actual loading rate of the bone. And literature has been pretty consistent with this as far as higher loading rates of the, say the tibia lead to a higher risk of stress fracture. So when you're running and your foot hits the ground, right? We've talked about it before where the force is going into your body, right? The ground reaction forces are going into your body. If that's going into your body real quick and not over, not dissipated over time, that's going to be a lot of force for the bone to absorb, which means the bone's getting damaged in that way. And this is especially seen in rear foot strikers because like we talked about, rear foot strikers have two peaks in their ground reaction force. Well, that getting to that first peak, if it's really high, you're in trouble. So keep that in mind when you're looking at an athlete, if they do run with a heel strike, right? Or if their rear foot's hitting the ground first then you can assume that they're putting a lot more forces through their bones and in their muscles in general. That's usually across the board on running injuries. The next area to look at is the kinematics. So how your body, like the ranges of motion, stuff like that. And the literature on this has been very limited because 
measuring stress fractures prospectively is very hard to do because they take some time to develop and you don't get a lot of them all at once. So a lot of this literature is done retrospectively. So taking someone who has had a history of stress fractures and then seeing how they move, which is cool, but you can't really get a cause and effect through that. And what they've found is runners with a history of stress fracture run with an increased knee stiffness. So their knee doesn't have as much motion into it to help absorb force, which means if your knee's stiff, that force has to be absorbed somewhere else. It's probably getting absorbed in the bone. Also, runners with a history of stress fracture also run with our favorite thing on the show. I feel like it's becoming a theme. Increased hip adduction and increased rear foot eversion. That's a theme? Well, at least the increased hip adduction. I feel like every time we talk about something muscle skeletal, we're always going back to the glutes. So those increases in motion can indicate a lack of glute control. If your glutes aren't firing correctly, that hip's going to go into a little more adduction, which if it's in more adduction and you hit the ground, that rear foot is going into more pronation or eversion, as, a, as we were just mentioning. And these forces of increasing that adduction increases the bending of the bone. If you were to think about it and look at the biomechanical movement of it or like look at a video, if your leg's coming more towards midline, it's creating a lot more torsion in that bone. The tibia is going to internally rotate a little bit more and actually bend more than it normally would, creating more tension, hence more stress on the bone. Now, we can't talk about stress fractures without talking about what? The female athlete triad? Exactly. Female athletes have a huge risk of stress fracture. Well, I guess I shouldn't say huge. Some studies have looked at that females are two times more likely to get a stress fracture. And a lot of that goes into how many variables there can be because the female athlete is definitely different than the male athlete and they shouldn't be treated the same. So there's more to look at. Uh, some studies have looked at the menstrual cycle itself, um, delayed menarche. So when you talk about the delayed onset of the menstrual cycle, they're talking about if it happens at or after 15 years of age. And then they'll look at the state of the menstrual cycle. So are they amenorrheic? Are they oligomenorrheic? I am glad I said that right. I saw it and I was a little worried that I was going to botch it, but I did not. I could have edited it. <laughs> yes, you could have. Thank you. And also if they're eumenorrheic, right? Both of these conditions, the delayed start to the menstrual cycle or their menstrual stack status has been implicated for lower bone mineral density, which if you don't have a lot of density in your bone, there's probably going to be a higher chance of getting a stress fracture. Individually, they do have some strength, but a better indicator of stress fracture risk in female athletes is taking the presence of multiple risk factors. And there was a really good study. I can't remember the journal, but again, I have it in the references um, that actually took a criteria. And if they had like, oh, they had four of these risk factors, they had this much risk. If they had all five, they had this much risk. So when you're talking to a female athlete, it's a good idea to, one, get a history of their stress fractures. Have they had one before? Have they had many before? Do they have low BMI? They have low BMI. That is an indicator of a risk for stress fracture. And that would be less than 18.5 kilograms per meter squared. Yes, that's what this study used as their cutoff. So I would, I would try and stay consistent with that. And then again, also their current menstrual status. Are they eumenorrheic? Or do they have amenorrhea or oligomenorrhea? This is very common in gymnastics. Absolutely. And definitely in distance runners. This is a big deal for them. Um, did they have that delay menarche? 
And here's another one that we, it's hard for us to identify, but low energy availability. And some of this is mostly just getting the history of, do they have a history of disordered eating or do they currently have that? And you can grade that based on whatever they say. And the tough part is, is they have to be honest. You know, some athletes that have disordered eating or actual eating disorder may not want to say it or maybe not even know that they have a problem. You know what I will add in my, in one of my undergrad classes, we did do this with a bunch of dancers. We had everyone take a food log of everything that they had eaten for a week. And I think that it's important to note that you don't just have to have a history or current disordered eating. A lot of times athletes and especially dancers may not know that they are not getting enough energy for how much they're outputting in their exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the nice thing with at least for the, I know a lot of us in the collegiate setting, the NCAA has made a very big push about mental health, which it's really good. You know, it just, it was something that needed to be addressed. And now the NCAA is recognizing that, Hey, this needs to be handled. So a lot of places are having more screenings for mental health as a, a part of their, you know, physical. So you could pick up this information based on like, how do they feel about food? What are their thoughts about food? Does consuming food like rule their life like those thought processes could be a huge indicator of disordered eating or eating disorder and like you said sandra that sometimes they just don't know they're not getting enough it's kind of crazy to think that someone might not be getting enough calories but if you actually look at it it's just an education piece because if you're eating a lot of plant-based foods a lot of those tend to be low in calories so when you add those up you might think that you're getting enough, but some of these athletes that we and patients that we're working with might actually need to be getting more for what they're putting out. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, when we talk about a female athlete and their menstrual cycle, these are more symptoms of a bigger underlying problem. So it's not the menstrual cycle problem that's causing the stress fracture risk. It's more of a symptom. So you have to, like, if you're seeing this in one of your female athletes, know that they are at a risk of stress fracture. And if they present with a stress fracture, you need to dig into these issues. But also there's a reason why these symptoms are popping up. So you have to dig even deeper to find that root cause to address it, which then will fix the menstrual cycle problems, which will then fix the stress fracture risk. You can't fix the menstrual problem to fix the stress fracture risk without getting the actual issue. It's funny how all these things link up. Oh, big time. The human body is quite amazing. So along the lines of the menstrual cycle and female athletes, a key piece to that, and this is also goes for male athletes, even though they don't have a menstrual cycle, is nutrition. Deficits in vitamin D and calcium can definitely be a risk factor for stress fracture. If your blood vitamin D and blood calcium is below the normal range, you're going to have some issues. You have a risk of developing these stress fractures. And supplementation has been shown to decrease this stress fracture risk if you're insufficient. If you are sufficient in those levels, it's been debated if it actually is necessary or if you actually have any benefit to supplementation. And also, there, vitamin D does carry risks if you supplement too much. Um, there are some pretty significant side effects. I can't remember off the top of my head. I should have, I should have wrote them down, but totally blanked out. But keep that in mind. If you don't, if you have an athlete that's 
has normal blood work, then you, they probably don't need to supplement vitamin D or calcium. I feel like that goes with most supplementation in general. I think too much or too little of anything is not a good formula. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So now that we understand what the risk factors are, let's get into our evaluation and interventions. With stress fracture, the bi- and really evaluation in general, I remember as an undergrad when we were going through our eval class, every class started the same. History is like 90% of the eval. I know everyone's so excited about special tests, but really it's all about the history. If you can get a good history, you can, you basically know, you have an idea of what you're looking at before you jump into your special tests. And this is no different with stress fracture. History is huge. Biggest thing is ask about their changes in training. Ask if their intensities change. Has the duration of their practice changed? Are they changing surfaces? I've seen that as a big issue. Has, have their shoes changed? I mean, Let me tell you, running athletes are very picky about their running shoes. I've even seen issues happen with a change in brand. They'd be like, oh, I ran an Asics, now I'm running a Nikes and my feet hurt. Like, that's crazy. That's how particular some of these running athletes are. So it's a good idea to ask if there's a change in their shoes, if the brand's changed, if the style of shoe has changed. Um, Mileage, that is the one thing that, as runners get older and more mature about their training, they have a good game plan of what their mileage is, where they want to be, where they have been, how each week has changed. So ask about that. You know, if they were running 20 miles last week and now they're at mile 50 this week, that's a, it's kind of a big jump. And I think also you have to, when we're talking about change in surfaces, this also links into COVID talk because I know in California, we're having to move a lot of our practices outdoors. So our basketball team, who's used to practicing on a sprung floor, is now outside on the concrete. How is that going to change things? Yeah, absolutely. And again, as we talked about those risk factors about nutrition and menstrual health, ask about those. You know, if you have a female athlete, ask if their menstrual cycles changed. What's changed about it? How are they feeling? Um, Ask about nutrition. Do they have a history of low vitamin D or low calcium? Have they ever been told that? Most of the time they don't know, but more than likely, if you ask them, have you been told that? And they're like, no, they probably haven't been told that. So ask as many questions as you can. This is where your history is going to really guide the rest of that evaluation. Yeah. It's hard to put a puzzle together if you don't have all the pieces. Exactly. Now there's not a lot of special tests for stress fractures. Um, some special tests that we already know can help you identify certain stress fractures like um, FADIR can be used for femoral neck. Faber can be used for sacral stress fractures. But the problem is, is those tests are so general. Like FADIR can also identify FAI and uh, labral tear. Oh, something's wrong in the hip. That's all we know. <laughs> that's, that's all you know. And that's where, like we were just saying, history is huge. If they have a history of maybe a stress fracture and then you do these special tests and there's pain, you can feel comfortable that they have a stress fracture. If you do these special tests without any signs of a stress fracture, then you could probably say it might not be a stress fracture. But a really good test, at least for the long bones that I love, I've found great success with it, is the fulcrum test. Essentially, what you're doing is you're bending the bone. It's really easy on the tibia to do. Um, how the test is described is you put your hand under their shin. You put your fist. Yes, thank you. You put your fist under their shin, and then you basically push on the distal aspect. 
Sometimes Almost I'm, like a seesaw. Yes. Sometimes I'm like, eh, I feel like I'm not getting a lot of bending. And my job is to find that stress fracture. So what I will do is I will put my leg under their shin and then press. So I'm trying to get even more bending. And I found pretty good success with that. Are you looking for pain or are you actually looking for like physical bending of the bone? What, what exactly? So a positive would be pain. So if they have pain in one particular spot, you can feel confident that that's probably where the stress fracture is. Now, sometimes when you do this, right, um, it's going to be uncomfortable on the calves. I mean, that's what happens when you foam roll, right? So that's why when they're, I'll ask, like, oh, do you feel pain? They'll be like, yes. I'll be like, where? And they're like, oh, back here. I'm like, okay, you're fine. <laughs> and I, you know what's funny is I've actually had that happen before where I had an athlete foam rolling and she says, ow, this really hurts. And I said, she was foam rolling her hamstring. And I said, oh, where? And she pointed towards the top of her thigh. And I was like, oh, that's really weird. That doesn't seem good. And I thought about it. She basically did a fulcrum test on herself. Later, we found out it was a femoral stress fracture. What a weird way to find out. Yeah. And when she said that, I was like, that's not right. So I got her on the table and I tried it myself. And she said, yeah, that kind of hurts. And I'm like, let's get this checked out just to make sure. Good thing you did. Yes, exactly. Okay, so let's talk about interventions. So this is kind of, when people think about rehabbing stress fractures, you the first thing you think of is, oh, well, it's a bone. There's really nothing I can do. It's just a waiting game. And that's true. But they're going to be out for so long, right? There's stuff we can work on in that time. Obviously, they're going to be non-weight-bearing for a little bit, so we could do stuff non-weight-bearing. So your rehab should focus on either risk factors that you've identified on this athlete or the findings from your exam. If you take a really good and thorough physical exam, you can find deficits that they have. A big deficit is uh, mobility. If they have a lot of muscle stiffness, well, if the muscle's stiff, it's not going to absorb force very well. Well, that force is that going to go to that bone. So that could have predisposed them to the stress fracture. So go off of what your exam told you and then hit those deficits. I would definitely say work on gluten core strength. We've already said those with a history of stress fracture may show lack of glute control based on kinematic findings of increased hip adduction, increased rear foot eversion. So, hey, do some glute work. Do some core work. If the core is firing correctly, the glutes are going to fire correctly. And plus, having good pelvic control is going to help with that hip motion as well. And then I'd also say work on their mobility. They're probably going to be in a boot for a long time or they're going to be on crutches. So, Get some joint mobs in there if you can. Work on that soft tissue tone. If you can get more mobility, it's going to help save them in the future. And I think this goes with every injury. I know that bones, it seems like you can't really do much, but there's so much other stuff in the body that you can be focusing on. Absolutely. And it's not a bad idea to talk to your to your team physician or the athlete's doctor about would supplementation be good for them? Or I know they have some bone stimulators out there that may increase healing. I didn't do any reading on that just because a lot of my physicians, we've never used it before, but that's still something that's out there to talk, talk to their doctor or have the patient talk to the, to their doctor about that. And then the return to play seems pretty obvious. Uh, it's mostly just building them back up. Um, but you want to do it as we talked about in other musculoskeletal injuries is you want it to be gradual, right? Especially a stress fracture because there's nothing more frustrating than them coming back. And then right when they get going again, they get a complication or a new stress, stress fracture pops up. I know for me, I've developed, um, I guess I can't say I developed. I kind of got it from a 
research article and then kind of put my own spin on it. But one of the articles that I read had a really good progression for runners from going from they'll jog this much time and then walk the rest of the time and then build up from there and then go back into jogging. So I would say come up with something systematic that works for you and your teams and your athletes about how to build these athletes back up as they get back into practice. Do you have a copy that we can share? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll get it from the article. Okay. Let's put that in our Facebook group. Yeah. It's, if anything, it's a good baseline. It seems like when you look at it, you're like, Ooh, this is kind of a long time, but also your coaches may be mad that it's taking a long time to get someone back, but they'll be less mad as if they went back and something happened. And plus at the end of the day, we're here for the athlete's health. It's all about the education piece. I think if they know upfront, they'll help a lot. Absolutely. And plus also lean on your physician too. They may have a protocol that's worked for them and say like, Hey, you know, how have you returned someone to play like this? Or what do you recommend? So always keep that in mind as well. All right, you guys, if you have any cool case studies on stress fractures, we want to hear them. If you have any protocols like Randy does, we want to hear them. Go ahead and put them in our AT Corner community Facebook group. And if you're not a part of our Facebook group, you can head over to facebook.com slash group slash AT Corner podcast and you can join our group. Yes, we've had a lot of good conversation in the group. And there's going to be more because this week, I promise, we're going to put up our giveaway. Ooh, what's the giveaway? So you guys will see, but basically we're trying to get more engagement in our Facebook group. So there's going to be more posting and more commenting, and then that will be released this week. Oh, I'm excited. I can't wait. If you guys want to do more reading like Randy, you can head over to our website. We have our citations up in the citations and resources, and that will also be in our description below or our show notes. So then you can go ahead and click on that. Yeah, I would definitely say take a look at these articles. If you don't feel comfortable with stress fractures or you get frustrated that you're like, oh, I missed another one. These are really great resources that give you a lot of background information. And I'm nerdy. I can acknowledge that, but they were good reads. (laughs) So anyway, if you guys are new, we do every other episode as education or stories. This was obviously an education episode. Next week, we are going back to our stories, and I think if we get enough stories, we might be doing a segment on dating as an athletic trainer. You don't think about it as much. I feel like that's going to, that there are some interesting stories and can be tough. Yes, definitely can be tough. And I think that we are totally not ones to talk, but you guys just hang on. We're going to cover that all in our next week's episode. it makes it a little easier when the other person's an athletic trainer because at least they understand yeah we'll we'll dive into that anything else you want to add randy nope that's perfect thank you for helping us showcase athletic training behind the tape bye